0: Parti casone con lo stemma rete, ma dopo la gavi si è raisata, passa per tu con manu qua te fa guardare. Okay, Tu vuoi fare americano? me che
1: con papà, tu
0: vuoi venire alla moda, ma se beve whisky e soda, poi ti sento disturbato, tu abbandoni rock and roll, tu giochi al peso, fai soldi per il chi devi dalla la cosetta di mamma,
1: tu vuoi fare americano, 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 ma se
2: nata da lì, si è da me non c'è sta niente. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knudsen and special guest Ryan Julio for a very special final edition of We Like Movies Retrospectating 1999 double feature. Talented Mr. Ripley and Magnolia. Matt, I have the feeling that you've been looking forward to this one for quite a while.
1: I was thinking of that scene in Rudy when Vince Vaughn says to Sean Astin, like, are you ready for this? And then Sean Astin's like, I've been ready for this my entire life. <laughs> I was like, that's me. I literally have been preparing for this conversation for the last 20 years of my life. I saw Magnolia in December of 1999 and I didn't like it. Or at least it went over my head. I didn't. I didn't get it. Let's put it
2: that way. As your opposite of that, I pretended that I got it, even <laughs> though I didn't. I, I pretended that I understood its profound meaning and extolled its virtues to everyone who would listen to me. Right. I was very pretentious, so I think I do get it now, and maybe that makes me like it less. I don't know, but we'll get into that later.
1: Wow. How, how about you, Ryan? Did you,
0: did you get it in 1999? <sighs> do you see it in the theater? Uh, I'm of the opinion it's not supposed to be gotten.
2: Mm. Okay, and so that's, that's heavy. Uh, we'll get, so that. you, we'll so get there in So you, so you do bit. get it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, we'll get there in a second.
2: Um, Matt, do you just want to quickly introduce Ryan? Uh,
0: yes,
1: the great Ryan Julio, who um, joined us for the Ant Man podcast, yep. and then for our uh, big Avengers Endgame Game. Roundtable discussion, mm-hmm. which is still one of my favorite episodes of all time. Oh, thank you! That was so that was much fun. I got to do that with the Doll Brothers in person, and we actually put you on speakerphone, and then we were in a conference room. Conference call. It was awesome. it was incredible. We had to we had to jump through some uh, some hoops, as if memory serves, to make that happen. But
2: yeah, great lightning round in that podcast. Yeah, that yeah, was, that's was pretty probably the highlight that. of that whole podcast. No. I gotta say,
0: how many uh, times? What's the, what's the record for appearances on WLM? Well, you can't count episode 300, right? Sure. So- I don't think anybody's
1: been on more than twice, right? Laura Crow's been on twice. Anders has been on twice. You've been on twice. Brian Brini's been on twice. So I'm breaking. I think ground. that's it's it. Yeah, you, you, I think this might be it. I think oh. this might be the first. You might be the first third timer. All right. Yeah. Cheers to that. the timers let's,
0: club. Yeah, all right. Let's <laughs> take a shot of eggnog for that.
2: <laughs> all right. So we're gonna do talented Mr. Ripley first. So uh, let's keep those magnolia thoughts to ourselves, Matt. I assume you're like me. Like, I saw this in December whenever, or soon after whenever it opened uh, in the theaters, uh, and I was super into it from the beginning and have been a big proponent of this movie for a long time. Contrarily, it sounds like, Ryan, you had never seen this movie prior to this discussion.
0: Yeah, I don't know why this had fallen off my radar, and I heard a lot about it. Maybe it was a whole, like, around the time I got into this, People talked a lot about uh, Gattaca as well, which is another interesting double, double, double feature we should do sometime. Maybe that, uh, enemy, or this but that's that's really interesting though because people always think of like the
1: talent of mr ripley as being like the jude law ovation like like the jude law coronation Mm -hmm. as it were. but you're right gattaca came first gattaca and the um uh, midnight in the garden of good and evil
0: exactly she's also in and so for whatever reason i had it just fell off my radar and i hadn't heard about it being talked a lot and it wasn't until you guys mentioned that you're doing this like yeah i'll happily watch it for the first time and chime in. And I was extremely blown away. I am ashamed that I had not seen it and it taken me 20 years to get around to this movie. Literally just from the opening credits and it's awesome uh, nods to Blue Note Jazz record labels uh, and covers, I was blown away. It's, it's a really fun movie to watch despite how freaking dark it gets.
2: Speaking of that opening, I, not, I like nothing more than uh, expedient Exposition at the beginning of a movie, and we get him to Italy before the opening credits are through. Oh, that totally. makes me so happy! That's it true, it's incredible. Yeah, it's Anthony Mangella. So, I mean, I understand uh, not wanting to jump. I mean, you probably weren't an English Patient super fan, so <laughs> you weren't like an Anthony Mangella guy. But uh, let's
1: just get, let's let's do a brief let's just, yeah, just do a like a brief Knutson's context corner mm-hmm. uh, okay. when it comes to Anthony Minghella. I mean, Anthony Minghella was debatably the single hottest director in the late '90s, coming off of The English Patient, right? Mm-hmm. Like The English Patient was a phenomenon, and to get sort of swallowed up by uh, Miramax and given basically all of the uh, all of the hottest actors in the world, right? Kate Blanchett, Jude Law. Gwyneth Paltrow, Matt Damon, Jack Davenport, Philip Seymour Hoffman—like he was given everybody—and and, and and it seemed like this was going to be this was going to be like the Avengers of uh, <laughs> oh, of Miramax wow. movies, right? Like, <laughs> okay. like everybody was coming together yeah. for this film, and it was like, here we go, this is it, this is this movie's going to win all the Oscars. This this is the film. This is going to be the film that defines 1999. And then it came out, and everybody was like, yeah, it was, it was fine. It was good. Let's move on. Let's let's celebrate American Beauty and Cider House Rules. Nobody cared.
2: I well, I don't know if nobody cared. I just think it was th- this movie is pretty unpalatable to a wide audience. It uh, I was looking it up. It had a C plus cinema score. <laughs> Holy shit! Which is. Horrendous, like yeah, for any awful. sort of like actually good movie, which makes me kind of happy about it. But, uh, I, I don't think people could take just how I don't know we, we were following this anti hero or made them feel weird that they were maybe secretly rooting for this murderer because that's what the movie does. That's like the magic trick this movie pulls is you're sort of you want Matt Damon to get away with it, you want. Yeah, Ripley to get away with it you're the
0: uh, you know the literary expert between the three of us here what's yeah. your relationship with the books beforehand um, and any expectations you had leading up about like where this story would go if, even if you had or had not read it
2: I read the book after the movie came out and I'm not sure I was even terribly aware that it was a well-regarded novel and it's still the only Patricia Highsmith book I've ever read so appreciate your your literary flattery but uh, don't have. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have much to add in that regard.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I rewatched this with my mother over the Thanksgiving holiday, and she had seen it before, but she didn't really have any opinions about it. But she's a big reader like you, and she had never read any Patricia Highsmith. So we talked a lot about Patricia Highsmith and about the fact that she wrote uh, *The Price of Salt* which was the basis for uh, Carol Mm -hmm. with with Cate Blanchett, the Todd Haynes movie. And we watched it and we enjoyed it. And afterwards, she was just completely horrified by it. And she was like, oh, my God, what a horrible person he is. I can't believe him. He's just like he's he's the most uh, horrific protagonist I've ever seen. I can't believe he's going to get away with all this. I'm like, yeah, but how did you feel about the film? And she's like, Oh, it's an incredible film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean that's and that's the magic trick That's the magic trick that this movie pulls is like he is a horrible person. He is it's he's not even an anti-hero. He is
2: No, he's a monster. Yeah. He's an absolute monster. But yeah. you
1: the movie forces forces you. The movie sort of like seduces you into rooting for him, which is
0: an incredible feat on Mangela's part. I think one of the interesting things about watching it now, especially having never seen it especially watching it in 2019 versus what the social climate was in 99. This movie reads really well and ages, I think, extremely well because of its, um, you know, the way you could look at Ripley as, you know, closeted uh, LGBTQ uh, character really was the most astounding part at the end. I think that's where it's not like the movie, you know, Happiness, where you're rooting for uh, an anti-hero or a monster or a human to drug a child and you feel bad for wanting that. It does do that well because you know a good story can make any protagonist, whether it's an anti-hero or not, uh, not necessarily relatable, but you want to root for the protagonist to get their goal. In this, that final little bit about, I mean, I guess we don't have to worry about spoiling 20-year-old movies, right? No. Um, Come on out with it. I, well, that's exactly it. Him coming out with it And kind of deciding this life of lies versus he's actually has an out. The way that it just deals with a character debating whether or not they should embrace their real personality, even especially if they have found someone that is encouraging it, that's the part that really resonated with me and turns the whole movie upside down. It makes me want to rewatch it just to see how maybe we can watch this as not just like, you know, a closeted uh, gay man that, you know, manifests his. Psychosis uh, as a result of being closeted out as far as becoming a killer, but also just seeing how society would take him in and then seeing this other beacon of hope for him get squashed because he's ultimately a victim of his own machinations. It's, it's a really interesting study if you look at it that way, and I think that's what makes it so awesome to watch 20 years later. And maybe at the time, that angle was, I don't want to say too foreign, but if you look at where we are socially 20 years ago it could have clearly flown over the heads of a lot of people when and I don't know if that was supposed to be an important piece of subtext at the time from the screenplay or the directors well movie.
1: that is that is apparently not part of the book uh-huh. like the whole the the Jack Davenport character and his relationship with Ripley is a complete fabrication mm-hmm. on Mingala's part like they, they they created all of that apparently the the homosexuality of the Ripley character, is very, very subtextual in the text. And the movie obviously makes it much more overt, mm-hmm. but Patricia Highsmith, who was a, a lesbian author, oh, okay. was al- was always playing it very very low key, right? Yeah. I mean, The Price of Salt, which is the the you know the text that gave birth to Carol, which is about a lesbian, which is a lesbian love story, um, is the only one of her books from from the research that I've done that deals overtly with homosexuality. Hmm. Whereas all of the Ripley books, it's all it's all very like below the radar, like it's all very kind of like implied. Whereas uh, Minghella's film and his screenplay, I feel is much more upfront about the fact that Ripley is clearly a, a homosexual character. And his relationship with Jack Davenport is a complete—I don't want to say a fabrication, but it's a complete invention for the screenplay, which really makes the ending of the film so devastating, right? Like yeah. The fact that he finds somebody and he finds somebody who really cares about him, and Jack mm-hmm. Davenport is the you know the single most decent character <laughs> in the history of cinema who clearly really cares about uh, this monster, Tom Ripley,
2: and Kate Blanchett ruins it all. Um,
1: <laughs> well, I, again, I was—I I watched this. I this was reiterate, I watched this movie with my mother over the Thanksgiving. Holiday and we were talking about like how could he have gotten away with it like does he have to kill Jack Davenport and we're like what if he just went down and killed Kate Like, what if he just went down and strangled Kate Blanchett? Couldn't he have gotten away with it? Couldn't he have Jack Davenport have just, like, lived happily ever after if he just killed Kate Blanchett? It sounds very dark to say it that way. I would never want anybody to strangle Kate Blanchett, but that's how he would have gotten away with it. But I think
0: that's the interesting part about adding the, uh, you know, coming-out-of-the-closet subtext where, yes, on paper, that makes sense for maybe a master plan, but he's reacting out of emotions for the first time here. He's almost he's
1: almost like strangling his own homosexual Exactly. in them, yeah and you know we get a little highfalutin well, <laughs> a little I think, but I think it's pretty
0: there. it's pretty obvious i mean you know it ends with him in the closet literally <laughs> yeah. again yeah. with a
2: mirror you can't get more obvious <laughs> yeah. with this stuff. Yes. no you're right um, it's very on the nose
1: but it, it works really really well like it's like aesthetically it's extraordinarily effective mm-hmm. yeah
2: i also think she had her whole family on that boat too who know. Knows him as Dicky, right? So yeah. that that complicates. But
1: he could have strangled things, her right. and thrown her overboard, right? Then he, you know, yeah. like, she, she, the, the truth dies with her.
2: <laughs> no, it's
1: so I'm well, be getting a little a little dark here.
2: Well, it, and I love how all these problems for Ripley throughout the movie can be traced back to his like in the moment decision to sort of uh take a run at being Dicky uh, when he first meets Kate Blanchett right in the, like the second scene in the movie
1: you know as a matter of fact if he would have just said hi my name is Tom Ripley let's go get a drink or something mm-hmm. let's just let's just blow off this whole Dicky situation he you know he may have had a completely different adventure yeah. But at the
0: same time, uh, Oscar, you mentioned this at the beginning that the opening 10 minutes gets through so much business. And the first thing he says is, it, will, it all would have been fine if I didn't borrow that jacket. He knows what he does. And that's what is, I mean, that's why he's the talented Mr. Ripley, because it's just, it's innate. And it isn't so much, certainly it is a con, but it's so much, the um, emotional subtext really changes it to just be um, a way. Yeah, there's a time, you know, when he finally decorates. The uh, Gaudi apartment and that awesome scene. You know, we'll talk about this, but I can spoiler alert, my uh, favorite scene is PSH and him kind of confronting each other. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, You know, and it just goes to show. We'll talk about this a lot more of how ridiculous 1999 was for Philip Seymour Hoffman. And a lot of these. Uh, character, actor, actors, but um, it was the year of Philip Seymour Hoffman and Philip Baker Hall. Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> but yeah, like it's not about the money; it is like the lifestyle, but it isn't about gaining financial freedom. It was really just kind of a class thing as well, um, but he doesn't know how to do anything else, which is also very fascinating.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not a con man thing, and maybe that's why you can sort of root for him, is that he? it's almost just survival. He's just reacting in the moment. None of this stuff is like, pre-planned to the nth degree, right? Like He's just sort of going with the flow and just doing what he has to do. Um, from the moment where he whacks Jude Law with an oar. By the way, I put this in my notes. I I always find that first uh, thwap of the oar to Jude Law's face is like the most realistic-looking wound. Oh, yeah. It's horrific. See, it's so unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It, is,
1: it is. There's an intentionality to how gory that scene is. You know, like, it is. it is truly, like, jarring how... Unbelievably violent that scene is,
2: <laughs> but
1: it's it it plays in like it it's it's completely of a piece with how horrible Dicky has become, right? Like you've been you've been conditioned to the fact that like oh yeah this guy this guy is terrible. If he gets whacked, maybe I'm gonna be okay with that. But nobody should get whacked that way, right? Yeah. Like he dies in a <laughs> horrific fashion, like regardless of the fact that he's an absolute dick. E. Um, nobody deserves to get uh, to get killed in that
2: fashion with a
1: with an oar. Yeah.
2: Just make room for Tom on the skiing trip. You know. That's all, all they had to do.
1: Oh my god! And then that shot over the top of the boat after he kills him, where he's kind of cuddling with the dead body. It's 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 incredible it's it's truly it, it's riveting and it's also just kind of shocking
0: at the same time matt may ask you this uh from a filmmaking and technical standpoint one thing i did really appreciate was there's was a lot of interesting canted angles or just some really i wouldn't say overtly stylistic but there were a lot of interesting choices made there how do you feel those all uh you know stand the test of time do you think they're kind of campy at that point or it's intent intentionally trying to lean into these like looks i mean what do you uh, what's your uh, perspective on it from a cinematography and technical stamina from direction as well
1: yeah I think I think Anthony Minghella was an incredibly talented filmmaker obviously he won his Oscar for the English patient which even though it won best picture is still an underrated film his breakout movie was truly madly deeply with um, uh, Alan Rickman and uh, his cinematographer was John Seal who uh, shot you know Mad Max Fury Road for oh, example I <laughs> yeah huh. so the same guy who shot the English patient shot Mad Max Fury Road so talk about an a- accomplished guy um, I think Anthony Miguel was an incredible filmmaker and I think he was on track to become maybe one of the great filmmakers of his generation. And then he just had an untimely death. I think he just had a heart attack and unfortunately was taken from us way too soon. But I think this movie is a technical marvel. Like I think it, I, I think it's kind of perfect actually. Like it is, it's an incredible screenplay. It's beautifully shot. The performances are great across the board. I think this is one of the great films of 1999, and it's strange to me that we don't revere this movie a little bit more. At the time, it kind of came and went, because people were like, "Yeah, all right, it's fine, lots of movie stars, it's not going to be an Oscar play, we're moving on. Like, no, wait, this is, this is a masterpiece of a movie, let's talk about this movie. It's strange to me that this is not sort of considered to be one of the great films of the 90s because I I, I think that it is, personally.
2: I mean, no, this is one of my favorite movies. I'm I'm glad we're talking about it. And, you know, we're going to talk about Magnolia here soon. I've probably seen Talented Miss Ripley three, four times as many times as Magnolia. Like, I adore this film. Uh, And it is... I, I guess it's the off-putting nature of it. I don't know. I, I keep thinking about that C plus Cinema score, and it people
1: it, just can't get over the I fact guess. that Ripley is yeah. They I mean focuses on a sociopath,
0: and people just kind of can't deal with that, right? Well, it's not it's just like, that, it's like a, it's like the Taxi
1: Driver syndrome. Or whatever.
0: There's a couple of things to that, though. It's not that we don't like despicable antiheroes and things like that. I mean, look at the billion dollars that Joker has made. Fair enough. But what's interesting is I think it's the ending. You know it's he gets away with it but it's remorseful and it's sad and he's literally strangled a part of himself and he wins but loses as opposed to so many of these an anti-hero they usually have either a comeuppance or they're somewhat vindicated by the story itself or other aspects of it and this really leaves on such a somber like melancholic ending that really makes you think and it isn't just about you know what he accomplished or there's no comeuppance at all for him and so i think that really makes it hard for people that want more escapist fare especially what's was uh, you know looking watching trailers it's looks like it's just another uh you know 90s brian de palma flick it's it's <laughs> so, it's sold as like a sexy thriller and it's really not i mean yes it is a thriller that deals with sex and gender, but it is not what you're thinking in that vein. Yeah.
2: I mean, I could see how this movie would make people feel uncomfortable, whether it's the you know homoeroticism, whether it's the, the sexuality stuff, or just the idea of your sense of self being sort of a cipher. Like you're just you know, am am I pretending to be someone all the time to other people just to get the you know, just to try to be charming, just to try to be their friend, like. I don't know, it probably makes people ask questions and they don't like
1: that. People don't like to ask questions.
2: (laughs) Mm -mm. People don't like to be forced
1: (laughs) to ask questions. Mm -mm. The book is the first in a series. I think there's at least five or six Ripley books Mm -hmm. that Patricia Highsmith wrote. I don't think this film is set up to be the first in a franchise necessarily, but it clearly ends with um with that open endedness of being like, all right, well this guy got away with it, so he's gonna have other adventures.
0: I like that you're you know positing that this could have been a uh Super dark, era-specific, era uh, born. Except instead of being absolutely spy, it was a.
2: Well, we can still have a, Mr. Uh, a Ripley sequel. Well, right? they, totally. I mean,
1: they made. I mean, they there uh, Ripley's Game, right? With with John Malkovich.
0: That's right. Um,
1: which is not uh, a direct sequel to this film, but it is. It's it's a it's an adaptation of a different Patricia it. so Highsmith. It's not canonic of any. Story. I don't think so, yeah. but um, but it's part of the same uh, series. Mm-hmm.
2: If you guys could pick one filmmaker to take up the mantle here with a, a Matt Damon Ripley sequel right now in, in Europe, who would it be? Oh,
0: man. That's a great question. Is it a problem that every time we have, like, who would you choose to direct blank, it's always going to be Denny Villeneuve? Like, <laughs> he could direct not a problem. It's, it's not a problem. Because that, that's exactly where my mind goes. Um, yeah. Plus, we know he can do franchises, right? He can do franchises, but it really, you know, I think you guys have talked a little bit about movies like Enemy. I think that shows just how he can really... Get the thriller and the psychological side to it. Um, that's where my mind goes. But he can do everything because he's a mastermind.
1: Maybe the greatest filmmaker of the 2010s, yes. as we determined uh, on our last episode. So, I mean, this—I think this sort of like leads us perfectly into just talking about Damon and how incredible Damon is in this movie. Yes, I think this is Damon's best performance personally. Um, this and Goodwill Hunting, I would say. I just—I think he is just fucking transcendent <laughs> in this movie I think he's so incredible and but I get why he turns people off I don't think it's people being...
2: And the that's hom- the point, though.
1: Yeah, right. it's yeah. not people being homophobic. It's just that, like you said, he's a sociopath. He's a monster. But he's still our guy. He is our titular talented guy.
2: Yeah, I wonder if part of this is, uh, you know, I think there's just a, like a low-lying tension that goes throughout the movie because he's almost, for the entire runtime, like on the precipice of of getting caught, of, of always hiding something from from others. And I think the audience is rooting for that dissonance to go away. Always, even if they're not wholly aware of it. So, and Matt Damon plays that shit so well with sort of like a, an insecure fly by the sea of his pants confidence. And goddamn, he's good at doing the voices too. Yeah,
1: he's fantastic I, I,
0: at the voices. It's man. crazy. Yeah,
1: he, he's a very underrated uh, impressionist. Yeah, for
0: sure. Yeah,
2: the, the James Rebhorn stuff at <laughs> the beginning is ridiculous. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, and, but it's just awesome you mentioned uh, insecure, flying by the sea of his pants, Matt Damon. I mean, there's an interesting th- tick he does uh, like a very like insecure but very charming smile that you see throughout all of his performances but specifically you mentioned um, uh, this movie and uh, we just talked about it uh, you just mentioned it as your other favorite performance um, Damon good yeah, Hunting. good hunting yeah. but especially if you watch like informant you know when he's kind of giggling his way through awkward situations <laughs> there's a lot of that through line of just a normal guy that gets put in a really weird situation. Yeah, just, he's good at tap dancing. right? And like yeah. charming his way through it. But you can see every time he knows, he does a good job of showing the audience and letting us know that we know that he's faking his way through, but everyone, everyone else around him has no idea. And it's a weird meta type of acting where we can see something that maybe it's not even that's just good acting that's just really awesome acting that the audience can pick up on subtleties that are pervasive and he's really good at but it is such a he's a cipher now a lot of the, the role season we as the audience pick
1: up on things that the characters around him don't pick up on yeah so and he's, he's 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 he's
0: uh privileging us to a certain amount of intimacy exactly and that. it works for his benefit in ways that like anytime Affleck gets to play an asshole it's a little bit on you the mean nose da- you mean Damon no I'm, I'm in a way a guy like Ben Affleck oh okay plays an asshole it's like yeah he's like good yeah. at doing that yeah. or like Denzel <laughs> can't escape a Denzelness, right okay, okay Matt Damon has a very oh yeah that's Matt Damon and you know we often refer to the uh world police you know Matt Damon oh, yeah. but he's smarter than people give him credit for and that's also part of the characters we're all talking about
1: I mean, just you just look at something like Ford versus Ferrari this year, which he's exceptional in, but he allows Christian Bale to sort of like take the more the flashier role. Sure. I mean, that to me that feels like the the most telling example of Damon's humility oh well I'm going to be in this movie but I'm going to play the hell out of this role but I'm going to allow Christian Bale to kind of like take the flashier role you know like I can do the Martian and I can be the guy and I can be the guy that's going to have to hold the screen for sure. the entire film or I can allow Christian Bale to do his thing and I'm still going to do my thing over here like that's an incredibly
0: humble and sophisticated way to go about being a movie star yeah right? I, he's he's is he a great assist I mean Oscar, I completely agree with you that Interstellar has no uh, place on any list that we and we're never going to talk about it ever again. Yeah. Thank you, right? That Thank being you. said. I disagree with both of you, and I agree with Brian Brini that it is
1: one yeah, of the best. Yeah, we, we know. We know you do, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that being said. But sense. you literally took the words right out of my mouth. I wanted to talk about he, Interstellar.
0: He's great in Interstellar yeah. as that support. Yeah. And then I'll also mention that he is one of my favorite. Uh, always surprises me as one of my favorite characters in Ocean yeah. um, because he is that in that one he's trying to like make himself bigger and wants to be more active he's like the quote unquote yeah. third most important character yeah, but like in- he succeeds because he's a little dopey he plays into that like I'm just kind of playing my suit my pants I'm not really prepared for this but I can charm my way through it and I think it just shows again that what I'm talking about the damon really works when he is first fiddle or just be uh, you know uh, a really good assist to help Prop up some bigger, ugly, crying McConaughey's around us.
2: You'll never accuse Matt Damon of overacting in any of his roles. Correct. Yeah, but and, they, and they, that, that, maybe the
1: Maybe The Departed. Maybe he, maybe, maybe he gets close maybe. in The Departed.
2: But you also don't accuse him of pulling like a Gosling and Drive, like under <laughs> really underselling <laughs> yeah. it. He's, he never does
1: saying, Gosling yeah. and Drive slash First Man, just like yeah. under undersells it too much. But let's just look at his Let's just look at his career before and after. The of Mr. Ripley. So, obviously, before, he does, like, Courage Under Fire, which is kind of his breakout, Chasing Amy, The Rainmaker, which is his first big hit, and then, of course, Good Will Hunting, which changes everything. And then he does Saving Private Ryan immediately after, and then Rounders, which is obviously a very important film. Uh, then he does Dogma, which is a favor to Kevin Smith, and then The of Mr. Ripley, which is debatably his best performance. And then he goes into a real fallow period. Titan A.E., Legend of Beggar Vance, Finding Forrester... Jane, Silent Bob Strike Back, Ocean's Eleven is in there, which he's great in. But he is the you know he's the third build in that movie, uh, Jerry, which is that weird Gus, Gus Van oh, Sant God. movie.
2: Great, great film.
1: Spirit, uh, <laughs> Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron. I mean, he's in a he's he's kind of like lost in the woods there at is the beginning it, of the 20s.
0: So is it Born that picks him back up? There you go. That's the
1: next one. Uh, born man. Identity. Born Identity changes things. Then all of a sudden he becomes he becomes I a mean, franchise action
0: star. We don't need to belabor, but I, I do. You know, you talked about Kenny underdo it. That is the one time he's not. I mean, he has so much more of the action thing to play, and he's sort of intentionally just kind of being, uh, you know, not as Stone episode. cold. Stone cold yeah. is yeah. exactly it. Um, he. That's the closest we'll ever get to him doing a Gosling, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean,
1: I think he, I think with the board movies, he like finds a different sort of gear, mm-hmm. where he's like, oh, I'm going to do this
0: now, and we totally buy him doing all yeah. of that. And now. We get the uh, it all comes around to that he gets to be, you know, Loki in a in a Thor movie, so it's all great. <laughs> right. I, I
2: like uh, I like the term doing a gosling. Just for, like, everyday life. Like, I'm going go to a, I'm gonna go to a bar and just do a gosling time. Tell us how that works gonna gonna out work for you. I'm going to work tomorrow. <laughs> I will
0: tell you this, as someone who works in the industry, if someone came in and was stone cold and didn't talk and just stared provocatively at women, that would not work. Unless you looked like Ryan Gosling. Unless you, know? you were a gosling. Yeah, yeah, if Matt Damon did that, everyone would be like, who is this creep? You know, he's probably going to impersonate us and kill us.
1: I think he tried to do a gosling in The Great Wall, and I don't think that worked out for him. <laughs> <laughs> he like oh had his ponytail God. and he tried to pull a gosling and just it did it didn't work out at all.
2: Well he, well, he was at, he was at gunpoint by the Chinese government.
1: So since we're sort of on the topic of cast, you want to just briefly before we move on to Magnolia talk about this unbelievable murderer's row cast. Yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow coming right off of an Oscar for Shakespeare in Love, Kate Blanchett coming right off of an Oscar nomination, which she probably should have won for Elizabeth, uh, Jude Law coming right off of the aforementioned Gattaca, and uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, he gets Oscar nominated for this movie, Phyllis Seymour Hoffman, Philip Baker Hall, <laughs> James <laughs> Rebhorn, I mean what an incredible cast this movie has, who am I missing?
0: I mean, you already talked about Jack Davenport. Jack Davenport. I mean, great, yeah. I've only ever seen him play, you know, the stuck up English. In the foil. Pirates of the Caribbean movies, yeah, yeah, and so seeing him such a lovable, you know, just like what an awesome guy he is—a charming British gentleman. Yeah, yeah. and it, he gets it so bad in this movie.
2: Yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman when he first shows up is unreal. Like <laughs> <laughs> this fucking guy, like, he, he just lights the screen on fire the moment he's there, and you're like, oh shit, this is this cannot end well. This is going to be terrible for Ripley. It's crazy. Tommy,
1: how goes the peeping?
0: Has, has <laughs> yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman
2: ever played like that? kind of bro because
0: it seems so now na- i just mentioned affleck but you know you could easily see him in like days of confused rolling with all those other uh guys going to like haze people he just looks like and acts like such a empowered douchebag of a party guy and he does it so well i mean that's i mentioned that's my favorite scene is just how he's kind of inquisitive about it and, and you know picking apart Ripley and his uh g- awful decor um Just him when he's in a mode like that is awesome. It just makes me so sad that like, we don't get to see PSH in the later years.
1: I mean, this is relatively early. Yeah. I mean, let's look at this. So. He starts out, he does an episode of Law & Order. And he does a couple of small movies. The first thing we really notice him in is Scent of a Woman in 1992, which is like his fourth film. And then, of course, he does uh, uh, Twister in uh, in 1996, which he's excellent in. Nobody's Fool, When a Man Loves a Woman, He's in The Getaway, Money for Nothing. Um, And then Boogie Nights, of course. And then he does um, The Big Lebowski in 1998, and then Patch Adams, and then Flawless and then Magnolia and talented Mr. Ripley both in 99. So honestly like when we look back on his career and we 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 are so impressed by him and overwhelmed by him, he really wasn't that deep into his career at this point. And I mean this you you could make the argument that like this was his apex, even more so than like the year that he won his Oscar, which would have been 2005 I for guess for Capone. Capote, yeah. yeah. But I mean this this was kind of the moment. I mean he does Almost Famous the next year, State and Maine, 25th right. Hour, Red Dragon. I mean, this is this is kind of his moment.
0: Well, I think, you know, and this is all just the most amazing segue possible. We, we can use it. We but, can use it as a segue. Uh, <laughs> it just goes to show that in 99, <laughs> this is when PSH became on the radar as, like, a director's actor. Oh, like, he finds these guys, kind of in the way that, like, you know, Pattison is having this awesome go, you know, to, the also way to right. wipe... To wipe the slate clean of Twilight, you know, working with the Safety brothers, working with um, Eggers in this in '99. You look, know, look with me, Nolan. Look, where Nolan. Yeah, L- looking at uh, how Philip Schumer Hoffman was able to find guys that got him, and conversely, could give a little bit more. Or did to, or did
1: directors did he find the directors or did they find
0: him? I, and that's what I don't know enough about. But it just if you look at where he is from '99 afterwards, from that point on, he is he's not necessarily a character guy like um, some of the other guys we'll talk about in Magnolia which makes up most of the cast he really transcends that but he gets these interesting roles that kind of push him in really crazy directions but he can always hang P.T. Anderson is just the best at that and when he has his crew he really knows how to pull awesome magic tricks with him uh, only rivaled by guys like Wes Anderson or Jim Jarmusch you know that have these stable of amazing actors that really really can do anything else, but they like working with specific directors because they can push them further than anyone else.
1: I think Philip Seymour Hoffman is going to end up being in the grand scheme basically sort of like the John Kazale of his generation. Now he's made he made way more movies than John Kazale, but he's the kind of guy that those of us who were lucky enough to have been alive to like see his rise and then eventual death, we're going to talk about him in the way that guys from the 70s talk about John Kazale, mm-hmm. who went on this crazy run where he made, you know, six movies all of which were masterpieces, all of which were nominated for Best Picture. And we're going to talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman as like potentially one of the if not the greatest actor of his generation and every single director who worked with him echoes that and it's yeah. like yeah he was he was the most prepared he was the most nuanced he was the most unexpected i mean i feel the same way about heath ledger like what could these guys yeah. have achieved where have they got? but ultimately like their legend is compact like their legend is its thing yeah. we have the legend of Philip Seymour Hoffman. we have his oeuvre to look back at, and and that's it. And he is fucking fantastic in everything, even the quote-unquote bad movies, even the Red Dragons or the Along uh, along Came Polly's. He's always great. That's part of Along Came (laughs) Polly. He steals Along Came came Polly. He's very good in Red Dragon. Uh, I mean, the guy never gave a bad performance. He yeah. never gave a boring performance, right? He was incapable of giving anything but an incredible performance. And I would,
2: I would argue, he might be the most important thing that restarted the Mission Impossible franchise. Oh, that's a
0: that's interesting. Extremely good point. Yeah, he, I mean, he's the yeah yeah. yeah. Like he I'll is, buy that. Despite the fact that Rogue Nation is my favorite of the series, I still might actually now that we're talking about it. As much as I love uh, Solomon, I I think I have to say that. He's he's the he, best villain. PSH is the best villain in that series because he's such a. <laughs> I mean, the way it opens, you know, with his stupid, yeah, stupid it, low voice. You have a wife. I'm gonna find her, <laughs> and I'm gonna hurt
2: well, her. And, <laughs> wasn't, that a bit, wasn't that like the main preview? Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, that was that was yeah. kind of like the selling point of that movie. It Was like, look at this. We got Philip fucking Seymour Hoffman as the villain in our franchise movie. It was a pretty big deal.
0: Well, all that's as a result of. P.T. Anderson be able to spot these guys and, you know, give them... Even the small... If on paper, you look at the role of um, the caretaker to a dying mogul. That sounds like such a small role, but after watching it again, that may be still one of the most... It's the linchpin of all of Magnolia. He's the it's, most decent character. It's still Parma. Yeah. you know? You can't... And you can't do that without really navigating it becoming too sincere, or, you know, he's maybe too sensitive i mean there's so many nuances to his performance in that um that really help hold a lot of these giant performances all together and can you get further abroad between
1: freddie miles in the talented mr ripley and phil parma in magnolia <laughs> and he
0: shot those or, two movies back and, to back
2: and and scotty and boogie Nights. exactly yeah. it's, i mean <laughs> yeah. i
0: think it's awesome too i mean it just it's part of the themes of Magnolia. It's how connected things are. I mean, you did just mention Mission Impossible. Their scenes together of Tom Cruise and uh, uh, yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman are just as uh, seething, but it's 180 degrees on the other side of the spectrum. Not, you know, not at gunpoint, but at a, you know, emotional edge. That's it's, so funny. I never made that connection. Yeah. They have one scene together in Magnolia,
1: and then they have one scene together in. Um Well, I guess they have a couple scenes together in Mission Impossible 3, but they play each other. Yeah. Like, they have to impersonate each other in Mission Impossible (laughs) 3, right? Which is, like, maybe the best scene in the movie where Philip and Robin is doing a Tom Cruise
0: impression. All right. I've been, like, really (laughs) stretching out this segue as long as possible. So we need to get some Magnolia. Yeah, let's do it. Um, uh, Oscar, what did you think about this movie on replay, and how does it compare to when you first
2: saw it? I, again, I thought it was profound and I couldn't really explain why when I was 16. Like, I knew it had something to do with biblical shit and the frogs and fate and whatever. But what really struck me this time around, because I don't think I'd watched the movie in a few years, is how much I had missed just the, like, father dynamics of, of, of the movie when I saw it the first time. And whether I just didn't want to see it or I just I was, was too young to really understand sort of the, uh, you know, Parents imprinting shittiness on their kids and the sort of trail of destruction that... Leads, uh, you know.
0: Sins of the Father theme. I agree. I actually didn't pick up on that either until this most recent watch. And I I own this movie and watch it a ton. And that's something that was still new to me on this watch. So now when you watch it again, did those things help or hurt the experience?
2: I don't know. Like, I think part of me looks at this movie now having the rest of Paul Thomas Anderson's filmography at my disposal. And this movie just feels like so much more of a mess and so much more pretentious. It's so much like a young person's Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I think this might be Paul Thomas Anderson's worst movie. Um, Hot take. Yeah, it is a hot take. It's a hot take, Uh, but
0: I actually might mirror some of your uh, views on this. So, I, when I first saw this, I was obsessed, you, you know, the yeah. biblical references, uh, I was one of the biggest champions for the ending that is, was so controversial at the time. And nowadays people, it's its really not such a big deal as it was back then. I, I was really swept up in it and I've, you know, it's one of the first, actually it's, it's the only uh, P.T. Anderson movie I've ever like owned on DVD and bought it digitally. I've watched this movie a lot, but mostly as scenes, not as a whole chunk because Mm-hmm. who has three hours at their disposal. Um, but um, I went into this rewatch knowing that I've always champed it as my favorite P.T. Anderson movie. I know it's not the best. I would still... We can talk about rankings in a sec. After doing a little bit of context and finally for the first time watching Inherent Vice, uh, revisiting uh, Phantom Thread, especially after it made so many appearances on the top 10 lists, I, I kind of agree. It's It's maybe similar to guys like radiohead where yeah sure every one of their albums is great and probably better than most things out there but if within its own oeuvre it does seem really messy but i will say that that part is what i like there's been a lot of other retrospective stuff and i don't know who to credit this to i i know uh griffin on Black check cited this as well but he couldn't mention it. i tried to look for it someone uh in av club likens magnolia to uh Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club as an album sure. and a creative piece of work. When you have uh, an auteur or auteurs that are at the height of their powers and they can literally do anything and they're coming off a really big critical success that wasn't not necessarily just mainstream but it's just universally beloved the only way to go is up and out and maximalist and while it is you know he go. He's gone on record many, many times now saying it was definitely twenty minutes too long. And it was, he shouldn't be given <laughs> yeah. all this money. And he, uh, yeah, you he could
1: make have, you could make the he, argument that he was at his at the height of his sure. "quote unquote" powers.
0: Despite all that, more so than even like making the master. Or whatever, I think right? that is what makes it such a quintessential ninety nine movie. Is that it's so big? It ch- shoots for everything. It's. Um, not like one of those, you know, it's a little bit about this and it's a little, little about that. It clearly has a focus, but it's just, you know, he's, it's him doing a double album and the references that he does, the whole, we're, I'm going to talk a little bit more about music later on, but um, just how many things it's trying to hit is just what happens when you give a very talented art school guy, the power to use Tom Cruise at his disposal. I still respect that, but I agree with you that it may actually be on the bottom rung of my Anderson movies, despite the fact that for so many years it was my favorite, it's it really kind of wavered on this rewatch. Not that I don't like it anymore, but when you look at the bigger picture of um, his work as a director, you see so much more of the flaws. I think you guys are crazy. I think this is his second best movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is an
1: absolute fucking masterpiece. I think it goes Boogie Nights, then Magnolia, then there will be blood. I may be in the minority about that, but just rewatching it this afternoon, I was just like, "This movie fucking holds up." This is an incredible work of art. I don't think this is him. Like you said, working at the height of his powers, where he literally had director's cut, he did whatever he wanted. He had a fucking movie star at the center of it. He was coming off of Boogie Nights, and he and like for a lot of filmmakers, I agree that like that oftentimes leads to their most indulgent work Mm -hmm. but for him i i like the indulgence i like when pt gets indulgent this is the
2: most indulgent (laughs) yeah i mean this this and the master i would say are the two most
1: indulgent Mm -hmm. pt movies he considers the master to be his masterpiece i think this might be his best movie boogie nights is my favorite and will always be my favorite of his films you know like uh, there will be blood is probably the consensus opinion as his best film Mm -hmm. best versus
0: favorite (laughs) It's funny, this is still probably one of my favorites, this and Boogie Nights, and it's because of the flaws that I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Having watched this movie twice on Revisit just to be able to talk about this, it, there's so many flaws, and there's so many, it's very much like Sgt. Pepper, which is one of my favorite Beatles albums. There's a couple weird spot uh, songs that I'll always skip. So many flaws, really. But I, like, yeah. I don't, I don't feel any I, of the flaws. I, but I'm,
2: I'm with, I'm with Ryan. All right, go, on the record.
0: There's flaws. It's messy. It's too. I do agree that. So and I used to defend those things. Now I kind of embrace them. But I think that's what makes them more of what it, it enhances. And supports, like, yeah, that's exactly what he wanted to do. Yeah, Um, Technically his best, I would, from a technical perspective, I really would put it on the bottom, despite Mm -hmm. it being tied between this and Boogie Nights as my favorite. Mm -hmm. And I watch it all the time, but you can't talk about it and not talk about how really flabby and... You know. Yeah,
2: it, it, man, it, it's weird that you say this is the most P.T. Anderson movie because I do feel like this is like the outlier really, Because I, yeah. I, I think it's kind of unfocused in a way and, and less meticulous sort of plotting-wise and story-wise and theme-wise than I mean, anything else he's done.
1: Okay, well then maybe you can basically bifurcate his entire oeuvre like before, like up to... Punch Drunk Love and after Punch Drunk Love I would, right I would, he's been I a agree. he's been a different filmmaker since Punch Drunk Love and I guess I like the early stuff I guess I like the early funny ones i right?
0: usually I like that analogy for certain uh, artists yeah but
1: and I would have Isn't said Punch that. Drunk Love the last San Fernando Valley kind of set? And then he became Kubrick. Just like because, he was, uh, he was Robert Altman slash Scorsese up until Punch Drunk Love, and then he turned into Kubrick for the last four movies. My argument and against And I, pre- I prefer the Altman stuff.
0: My argument against that early later stuff is, would have I would have agreed with you until I'd seen Inherent Vice, mm-hmm. and yeah, I think Inherent Vice. Is just shows that that's pain. kind of him living in both worlds and that, that's the thing it's like i think he still has it we can't like separate his work into two halves yet because he's still he's not old he's still cranking out yeah. not cranking out is not the right word but he still puts out very important films every single time he got to do you know daniel day lewis's last performance i think it's too early to say where he is yeah and i think but i do uh agree with oscar here in Retrospect now, and this is a really good point about why we have retrospectating here, is that if you had asked me 10 years ago, not 20 years ago, I would have said is the best and favorite with a bullet. But with Phantom Thread Inherent Vice, and Vice, that I also just kind of put that off my radar and I had only seen it just to get context for this. He can be funnier, he can still be more dramatic in different places, and I think we have a lot more to see from him and we'll get a better picture maybe in another 10 or 20 years from his work.
1: I think that the films he is doing now, like, basically post-Master, are definitely more him. Like, they are more personal. They are more who he actually is and who he wants to be as a filmmaker. I just... Prefer who he was in his twenties and early thirties, and that's just a personal preference sure. thing. I just liked him channeling Scorsese and all men, but, Allman. but do you think ultimately, literally, like better movies, better?
0: like from a technical direction standpoint, it's
1: hard to argue with the fact. It's hard to argue against that there will be blood is his masterpiece, right? Because that is that is the perfect distillation of like all of his powers, like everything coming together, right? I guess it just comes down to a personal preference thing. The reason that I think I didn't respond to Inherent Vice is because to me that felt like him like looking back to who he, who he previously was as a filmmaker, but approaching the material as the filmmaker that he was at that point. Does that make sense? Like He wanted to make a film in the Boogie Nights slash Magnolia world, but he's not that filmmaker anymore. He's now the master slash uh, there will be blood filmmaker.
2: So here's the thing. I think he's You love that back. movie, Oscar. I like Inherent Vice. Is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah, I don't. And I love Phantom Thread. Uh, but his next movie is a 70s period piece with what it seems like will be a sprawling
1: cast. And I can't tell you how excited I am about it, but I'm also yeah. worried because he's not, he's not that guy anymore. So I'm excited
0: slash terrified by this, this next film. I don't think he's not that. I think it's it's <laughs> funny that you're worried about that him being something that he's not or he's grown
2: out of. Right Vice. to Ryan's point, yeah, Inherent Vice showed that he can go. You know, he can bob and weave and go back and forth and do what he wants to do. Like Inherent Vice is wonderful. I know Matt, you're not a fan. Like I, I read the book. I love that book. I did as well. And it it's such a wonderful shady dog thing. And I I, I love that movie. I've, I've gone back to it more times in the last few years than magnolia certainly but i think it just shows he can go back and forth and then to follow that up with like the absolute most meticulous movie you know phantom thread yeah he can do he can do whatever he wants i wouldn't worry about him
1: i mean there are probably people who think that phantom thread is his masterpiece like phantom thread might be his most universally beloved film it's certainly less yeah. divisive than there will there
0: will be blood right i would i would actually everybody loves would, phantom thread i would argue that phantom thread is a better made movie. it would top as far as best and ranking from a technical standpoint, I would say it's yeah. I would say it's superior to There Will Be Blood in, in several ways, especially like, I, I think It's certainly tighter it's certainly more disciplined. It's tighter yeah. it doesn't meander as much, the themes are a lot more specific, there's we all love Dano day Lewis's performance in There Will Be Blood, but it's singular and yes, um, his foil, uh, Paul, what's it, was it, not Paul Dana? what's his name, uh, who plays the brother in There Will Be Blood yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul Dana. It is oh. Paul Dan that relation as far as like a foil goes it's great okay. but it's nowhere near as effective of seeing like a relationship you know and the relationships in phantom thread mirror a lot of what i like in magnolia and the whole movie is about relationships and that's when he succeeds the reason master works is the relationships the relationship that he that uh um Philip hoffman and joaquin phoenix have uh boogie nights is a movie about finding a new family that's when he works best. And I think to that credit, that is the best part about Magnolia is that we've talked about casts and things like that. Matt, why don't you help us out here and walk us through the cast that is basically doing what the trailer did and having every single actor say who they are. And
1: Yeah, it, it was one of my, I mean, I've talked many times over the course of this retrospectating series about my affection for the trailers of 99 and how that was kind <laughs> of like, that it may have been like the pinnacle of my, you know, trailer fetishization. But yeah, the trailer does this incredible thing where basically the camera pans around and then it will land and on these different characters and they will introduce themselves mm-hmm. you know I'm quiz kid Donnie Smith I'm Linda Partridge I'm whoever the thing that Pete Anderson did for the first three or four films of his career was like bring together these ensembles and for a guy that was that young and, and only made a couple of films to be able to create basically a repertory group was kind of unprecedented you know to bring William H. Macy and Julianne Moore and Luis Guzman you know and Phyllis Seymour Hoffman and John C. Reilly to bring all these people together debatably the most important and the most exciting character actors of their generation to bring them all together for these kinds of films he and Steven Soderbergh were the only guys doing this in the late 90s and that was really really exciting and the fact that they were committing themselves to these filmmakers and the fact that they were committing themselves to such a young filmmaker I I I think, says a lot about the importance of the scripts that he was writing at the time. I remember, I remember reading this I remember reading this article in, uh, I think it was in Premiere, William H. Macy was basically saying, my agent told me not to do Boogie Nights. Like, why would you make a movie about the <laughs> porn industry? This is a horrible idea. This is terrible for, this is going to be terrible for your career. And William H. Macy was like, I'm going to do this movie. I don't care. Yeah. I, it, it's the most amazing script I've ever read and he did it and it's one of the most important movies yeah, of the 90s and and, and his i think role it, it is amazing exactly and you know don Cheadle and louis guzman yeah. all like all these guys they were just like yeah this this guy he's a fucking wunderkind he's yeah. he's a genius so let's hitch our wagon to his star let's get involved let's be part of the paul thomas anderson repertory group and that's where i thought he was going and that's where he was going through punch drunk love and then he just became something else I'm not judging him for becoming something else. i'm I'm proud of him for becoming something else, but I thought he was going to become... I thought he was going to be Robert Altman. But he didn't well, have any interest in being Robert Altman. I he wanted to be something if else. If you want to split and up... And Magnolia is the end of the Altman period.
0: If you want to split up his work, I think that's specifically it. It's yeah. moving away from these ensemble pieces yeah. to literally... And maybe this
1: next movie that he's just announced is going to be a return to that, yeah. which gets me excited. But but who knows? I mean, he does his own thing. Yeah. He,
0: he has nothing left to prove. We are yeah. we all agree that he's a genius. So And, and you know, we, so that Robert Altman through line makes a lot of sense, especially seeing how... After getting so big with this, and yes, following up with a slightly smaller, you know, movie with uh, a much smaller movie with Punch Drunk the Love, yeah. then to get you know have that period of downtime and come back with you know one of the great, you know, Therapy of Blood is just a single towering performance, yeah. and then kind of slowly building out—it's like a sprawling American yeah. masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Oscar, on watching this again, and I think you can't talk about this movie without really going through the performances. Obviously, um, what at which storylines, characters, or performances like were better or worse when you watched it or things that like surprised you because everybody's storyline is, you know, that's the whole point of this. It's the different threads interacting and you know, only through fate or deus ex machina are they all tied. What did you like, or what was interesting to you when rewatching this?
2: I'll say that I uh, was not a big fan of Julianne Moore's performance upon rewatch. <laughs> she, uh, she's the biggest. She's the biggest. She's far and she's away, the little, biggest. Little much. I really, which enjoyed... is crazy,
1: coming off of Boogie Nights, where she was Oscar. Yeah, nominated
2: yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, I know it's nuts, and she got Oscar nominated uh, in 1999, but not for this. Oh, uh, what, for, what
1: for the the end
2: of the affair? Yeah, yeah, which is which is interesting. Melora Walters, kind of similar way, like. What a weird career she had. I mean, maybe yeah. not weird, she just didn't get much work after this and she's sort of been around.
0: You know, Melora Watts is, is is big, but I actually did like her performance. I appreciated it more here. It is really big, but there's a little more focus to it. There's a lot more heart behind it. Plus she gets the last, the yeah, in, she, infam, infamous, the final, infamous shot. final shot. Yeah, yeah. I actually,
1: uh, actually got a chance to work with her maybe about six or seven years ago. She couldn't have been more of a sweetheart. And uh, I really enjoyed I mean, you know, I didn't get to know her or anything, but like the few minutes that we spent together, yeah. I, had, I just found her to be incredibly congenial. Mm-hmm. And um, she also was able to just like turn it off and turn it on immediately, which I appreciated. Like we were just having a conversation and it was just very easy and casual. And then the cameras rolled and she was just able to turn the character on instantaneously. It was like, wow, you are a fucking pro, mm-hmm. Laura Walters. And the way that she is able to activate the waterworks behind her eyes, like she can bring yep. those tears out mm-hmm. so quickly, and that's why he trusts her in that final shot because he pushes in on her for a really long time, I and mean, that is a long ass shot, and she is able yeah, to liquefy of, her eyes right at the.
0: Of, it's mm-hmm. like welling up tears right. before the smile.
1: Everybody steals from everybody. That, that's part of filmmaking, and I don't mean to uh, turn the spotlight on myself, but when I saw that final shot in '99, I was just like. That is an incredible way to end a film. I'm going to steal that someday. And then when I got around to making a feature, 18 years later, or whatever, I stole that last shot for my <laughs> for my debut feature. And the oh, end man. of my the end of my uh, feature debut, of my western, is the exact like That's funny. we literally stole the end shot of Magnolia for our for our western, Cassidy Red. <laughs> it's the exact
0: same shot. Uh, well, aside from you know those big ones, you know Oscar, what what we were. Did anything surprise you out of these uh, performances? I mean, obviously, we'll talk about. We've talked a lot about, you know, character of Phil Parma. We got get to yeah. Cru- we got to get to Cruise eventually.
2: L- let no, let's talk about Cruise because okay. uh, <laughs> I, I I wouldn't call it surprising, but I think he, I mean he's absolutely spectacular in this role. And, it's it's you know, the
1: performance of his career. It I'm, makes you I'm, wish
2: that he would work with more auteurs and do more stuff like this. It's crazy how prescient that character is and that idea is, like, hmm. these days. Like, he, he predicted, <laughs> yes. like, pickup artistry, and it's, it's sort of like that incel culture, almost, that's going on right now. Yes. And, and that was before we were even talking about it. Like, this is you know, a decade before this became even a thing. So kudos to PTA for seeing the future, I guess. It's crazy.
1: And kudos to Cruz for being like, I'm going to trust you. I'm I'm going to put myself in your hands. I'm going to trust myself with you. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to just give myself over to this character and I'm going to give it my all. And I'm going to trust that this film portrays me in a way that doesn't glorify this character, right? It just signifies it or it just uh, analyzes it, right? Mm Yeah. And he ends up becoming the most interesting character in the film, I feel. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the biggest movie star in the movie is the most important character. Does that make sense? Like, like Cruz becomes the most... It, like, he transcends the film, but it's not because he's being the, movie, the most movie star-ish.
0: He's written with the most... Uh, he has one of the most drastic arcs in it. What could be construed in modern times as, like, proto anti-SJW Gamergate sort of thing he's just one of those like bros in that we're that's so obvious to spot now but then after his breakdown um, during the interview where he's uh, quietly judging you it just completely flips and then you know he he even mentions it when he's in that interview it's like oh you know know, daddy didn't hug me and uh, you know Mommy wasn't around sort of thing. Um, he hints at it, and then it really comes to fruition later on when he's giving that, like, is there any more uh, obvious Oscar bait, Oscar <laughs> clip scene of him, like, crying over the bed? Like, that's what everybody wishes they could do in any sort. If if you say, hey, I want to be an actor one day and get an Oscar-winning <laughs> performance, you pray to God someone writes a scene like hey. that for you. Um, and he... Does it so freaking well. Like that part just and, like, can I have
2: can I have Jason Robards being the dying man? Yeah. <laughs> and, have, and then just talking about the sis Can I be crying over the bed and of then. one of
1: these greatest actors of all time? And then also,
2: you know, one of our other greatest actors of
0: all time crying in the background. Yeah. You know, Philip so Hoffman is yeah supporting like so the way it's supported by these titans of the screen to give the guy who's just known as the best runner in film oh. to all of a sudden have this like incredible you know talking about welling up the eyes like that scene alone is that makes the movie but you have to you have to earn it's earned but you have to pay a lot
1: to get there i was just watching it this afternoon and i I was i was like focusing in on that scene and phyllis seymour hoffman is literally in the background of that scene it's not a double he is literally standing in the background in soft focus, crying. Yeah, he's you crying. Know, like,
0: yeah, and, as, to like, him and it's like, just because you're not in focus doesn't mean you you're you not adding to it. It's right. Like him just and it would have
1: been so easy to just frame, you know, just cut him out. Yeah. It, would, it would have been so easy to just, like, go in tight on mm-hmm. Cruise and just be like, we don't need... but. It's important for Phil Phyllis, it's, for, it's, for, for Phil to be, yeah to be there exactly. Right. He also needs to make
0: sure like hey make He's sure the conscience if of the something movie. goes wrong I need you to be there. Uh, you yeah. Know, don't let these fucking dogs and really dropkick. I them. will dropkick
1: these fucking dogs if they come near <laughs> <to> me. <laughs> the Tom Cruise character is so fucking important this movie because he ends up becoming like the heart and soul of this thing. He ends up becoming the most most important character for me. But it never feels like Tom Cruise is taking over the movie, and I guess that's the that's the thing that I want to kind of like hone in on. Like to me, he is the most important character. To me, he is the standout performance. But it doesn't feel like a movie star grabbing the movie and absconding with it. You know, am I am I am I wrong about that?
0: There's a lot of ways to to take all the performances here. my counter argument to that, and why I like I wanted to lead with Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, as the segue, I think he's the heart and soul of this because he's yeah. the moral compass because he's, well, he's the one. He and uh, John C. Reilly are like the decent characters, and right? If could, They're the only
1: ones who aren't flawed. Yeah, we, we haven't
0: got to like uh, the other half. We haven't got to like the other <laughs> two so thirds of the characters. So many characters in this movie. <laughs> one thing, I'll, the, the last thing I'll talk about, Phil, uh, you know, Philip harm as a character. The other part that's awesome is the meta side of it. It's like, you know, this is that moment in the movie where you know. It sounds like I'm making the call because of the long lost son, but this is that moment. And when he delivers that, it could be so awful. And especially just as we talk about the, you know, the over empowered art school kid who just made this three hour movie and wants no cuts at all to still deliver the Tom Cruise scene is great. But him getting Phil Simmer Hoffman to do, like, this is that movie. This is that scene. That is a more, I think, a bigger flex. Very postmodern. Exactly. In a way that, like, he'll never get to get that part back again.
1: And he basically took that exchange and that conversation and just blew it up for Punch Drunk Love. Like that's what punch drunk love erupts from, right? Oh, just like,
0: like Phil Schuoffen on the phone. Adam
1: Sandler having a conversation yeah. on the phone with the phone sex operator. <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. that's what that movie ends up
0: becoming. It,
1: it all sort of like uh, apertures out from there.
0: So uh, you know, because we we have to get through and get more of these. Uh, we're gonna take four more hours if we don't start talking about some of the other characters in this movie. We just passed an hour, but okay, uh, no no rush. I will say one thing that was a little. I was kind of saddened to have to say this out loud. The William H Macy storyline is a little little bit superfluous on rewatch and really looking at the movie not not that I was looking for flaws but in terms of dealing with homosexual characters it's like a little bit to kind of I wouldn't even say it's that it's just that his he he kind of skirts around a story a lot and it's he has some really awesome moments but I think that is a good example of like you could probably lose that whole line and gain your 20 minutes of efficiency like I know he's there to kind of give context for where like what happens when you are the unfortunate quiz kid champion and you know he does deliver i think some of these really key lines in the script that's clearly pt anderson um just getting his uh yaya's out like uh one of them would be now that i've met you would you agree to never seeing me again that that's actually i just learned about this that's uh a line, it's like the opening verse from an Amy Mann song that's like heavily featured. I didn't know that was part of the thing. So clearly, he's just weaving that in because he wants it. I got to quote Amy Mann and put some of her lyrics in. But the whole, like, I have a lot of love to give, I just don't know where to put it. To me, that is the, that is the pivotal line the pivotal of the line, film. But I would argue... I have so much
1: love to give, I just don't know where to put could- it
0: probably give that to anybody else. Yeah, fair. And then now you don't even need uh, that character like
1: there. My My pushback against that would be that the film is all about reflections. It's all about young characters being reflected in the older versions of themselves, right? So it's about Stanley Specter being reflected in Quiz Kid Donnie Smith, right? Mm-hmm. It's the young Wiz Kid reflected in the older Wiz Kid where Stanley Specter is going to go. It's in Philip Seymour Hoffman's character being reflected in Jason Robard's character, right? I'm um, oh, sorry. Sorry, not he- Phillips, it's it's uh, Philip Baker Hall's character. He will eventually become of Jason Robert. Robards yeah. if he doesn't die of cancer, mm-hmm. right? Yep. It's, it's about I mean, these people be, uh, who will eventually become the worst versions of themselves, right? I
2: mean, my retort to that would be William Ace Macy's latent ho- homosexuality has nothing to do with the quiz kid persona
1: right and the movie like leans too heavily into the latent homosexuality well, to, to, to Ryan's of it point, all
2: i just think, i think that's a bit of a superfluous plot and doesn't really tie into the greater thematic elements right
1: it just sort of like reinforces the fact that he has all this love to give he just he doesn't know where to put it right because sure. he's he's infatuated with this bartender but he can't he he, he can't express himself to the bartender because yeah. he's latently homosexual uh, well I, but he, I,
2: he he knows where to put it he yeah. <laughs> <literally> knows <laughs> he where knows to where put it go. but yeah. he just
1: can't put it there because he is, yeah.
2: And again, I think it's a
0: great, that's exactly the P.T. Anderson in 1999. He's like, I really want to get this awesome line in, but that doesn't (laughs) mean it works for the movie. Like another great, there's so many of these lines that like are awesome to quote when you watch this movie at our age in 1999, but now you're in retrospect, like, yeah, you could just give that to anybody else or just cut it out. You need a tighter film. And so him at the bar, you know, yes, major kudos to P.T. Anderson for... Convincing me that Super Tramp is cool. Uh, Super like, Tramp is cool. Yeah, he is don't cool. Those two needle Rex drops? of
2: Champions uh, is a classic <laughs> album and I will not hear. Well, I, mean, I, I only it ever so really got it into
0: because of this movie. But yeah. he uses two, two different. different um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, what's, what's, Goodbye, what's Stranger the, what's the, and, and Logical Song. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. that whole, like, I don't even know what the name of that character is the white hair. He's a crazy. Uh, Henry Gibson. Henry Gibson. Yeah. You know. Who is a
1: Robert Allman guy. Sure. So that's his callback to and the And that's, again,
0: like, I want to reference. The Altman, he wants so much out of this, and so when he gets this, see the like, thing,
1: is I don't know if he necessarily wanted to be Altman or if he wanted to call back to Altman. I think I am projecting my like wish that he would have become the Robert Altman surrogate. Like, I wanted him to become Robert Altman because I didn't want to lose Robert Altman. No, my, my, but I don't think Pete Anderson ever wanted to be Robert Altman. I think he
0: wanted to be Stanley Kubrick, I'm not, which is what he, what he has become. I'm not as bad that he wanted to like project or call back to that, yeah. he just wants. And this is what happens when someone has a lot of things they want and has unlimited power to just do everything. And so you get that whole sideline and no, it is... It is not dangerous to confuse children with angels. What a pretentious line that is! That has <laughs> this movie's filled really, with that. Really, yeah. no. Every other line is. We could talk about super, all the themes of this yeah. movie. You know, we haven't even talked about the ridiculous prologue and the way he sets up an in-universe set of rules. Yeah. Um, Occasionally, I would just come home
1: from a long night and I would just turn on the, the prologue, prologue yeah. of Magnolia <laughs> and just like That's go to I mean, sleep. It's its own just, movie, yeah, yeah, just watch that for 15 minutes or 10 minutes, and then just yeah. you know, Patton Oswald and all that
0: bullshit. This this goes back to what I. I think oscar and i are ganging up on you i know i can't i'm I'm very surprised that that this is a two-on-one situation it's it's great that you get to say these lines it's it's cool you got that guitar solo in but did that make the song better did it make the album better it gets to be a point where like guitar solos like crazy shots and, and you know i would even argue the frogs make sense but that line about the children with the angels is the moment for me where it's like I was watching it. It's like this is a bit much. Yeah, and yeah. I, it's I the mean, weakest point of the movie. It, it, and yet, it's such a f- awesome line, and that's what makes it even worse.
1: This is his most pretentious film, and this oh, is the guy who, a and yeah. this is the guy who made *The Master*. <laughs> <laughs> and there will be blood and inherent vice. And this is still his most pretentious film, and yet,
2: it's it's him dabbling in melodrama, which is not really something that all his other movies have right like that, that goes back to my unfocused point ab- about this movie which is uh i don't know it, it's it's still it's still insanely watchable and crazy interesting but i, I guess i do like the later version i mean I, I guess that's what it comes down to i like the later version of pta
0: yeah i mean uh i can definitely there's so many good things about this movie and it's yeah. i'm not trying to take this down and again i i that's why i'm glad i prefaced it with the radiohead analogy on this music thing where you have these artists you know we've talked in this discussion about altman and pta in the same way we talked about radiohead and Beatles in this conversation these are you know masters upon masters so us picking any nids with it is still solid eight as opposed to like you know a golden or bleak spot in somebody's kind of spotty catalog at least Mm -hmm. oscar and i are you know i'm not saying it's a bad movie and i'm not saying it's it's overly flawed but i think it's Mm -hmm. uh a Awesome example of why when we look at movies twenty years later and see who these artists are, what they're putting out, it does at least make you realize that maybe we were a bit, you know, swept up in the whole thing, yeah. and us being swept up by things like that gave him too much of this ability. We we created the guitar solos that he's putting in there, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it became a really big phenomena. And so, like, yeah, okay, I you know, I, I got to start selling out uh, stadiums so I really gotta make, start making three hour movies right. we should we yeah. should all be, acts of God
1: we should all be so lucky to be compared to Robert Altman like yeah. we should all be so lucky sure. to have our films compared like oh my god he's the second coming of Martin Scorsese and then he ends up disappointing us by becoming Stanley Kubrick instead right yeah, <laughs> yeah. we well, should all be so I, lucky I, to uh, re, you know subvert what you thought we were supposed to be by who we sh- should have been
2: I'm gonna go on a tiny tangent here and I'll preface it by saying I'm not not sure, I have much of a point, but I, I think it's interesting. Um, Good preface. <laughs> <laughs> great preface. Um, you know, when I look at PTA, I, I think like who are his main contemporaries and sort of career arc contemporaries. And when I look at the 90s, I think of two other auteurs. I think of Quentin Tarantino and Wes Anderson. It's interesting with their third movies, first three movies, they they have an extremely similar arc, right? First movie that is sort of really independent under under the radar, but gets them on the map, right? That's Sydney Heart Eight, that's Reservoir Dogs, that's Bottle Rocket. And then they have the second movie that gets them on the map, that gets them popular and gets them a lot of recognition, right? And I, and I would argue
1: that they soft that those three sophomore films Rushmore. Real Tenant Bombs,
0: yeah. uh,
1: Boogie Nights, and uh Pulp no, Fiction.
0: If we're if we're calling Bottle Rocket Yeah. Intro yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry yeah. when I say so, Real Tenant Bombs, yeah. yes. Rushmore, Rushmore Pulp Fiction
1: Nights. and Boogie yeah. Nights are still those three filmmakers' best films. They're but maybe unbeatable. that makes me maybe that makes me basic, yeah. as the kids say. No, I, yeah, I, the, I think the, no the, one the they made would a
2: modern masters. Done. But yeah. but I think the point is that after those sophomore efforts, they could do anything they want. They're all at this place where they could do literally anything. And I just think it's interesting to see what choices those three people made, right? To That's go very true. where they did, right? Like you know, Wes Anderson just decided to enhance his Wes Andersonness. Like Wes Anderson decided
1: to double
0: down on being Wes
2: yeah. Anderson.
1: Paul
0: Thomas Anderson decided
1: to be somebody else.
0: If you look at all all three of those guys, Wes Anderson and Tarantino, they did a good job with that follow-up of starting what just was, you know, a young filmmaker and then turning them into brands, not just a director, but there's a look, there's a style. I mean, look at, you know, where Tarantino would go next and he's literally ca- calling out like this is the fourth movie I have ever made. In his own yep. uh, filmography, when he, in the opening scenes, you know, right. Wes Anderson continues to double down, and there's a look, there's a brand, um, but that's never kind made
2: of, in Futura. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Never.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's that's. But that's exactly it. And you look at how Tarantino has done the same thing. PTA is interesting because. It is sort of this wandering guy he, does, that he doesn't brand. He doesn't know. No. He, does, he doesn't know what he wants he, he, to do. And well, he's he's not narcissistic like those yeah. guys are.
1: He doesn't brand. <laughs> and, he just but, he just lets his work speak for itself. To
0: be fair, if I had to compare it to anybody else, I wouldn't say they're like specifically just '90s directors. But I think he has a lot more in common uh, with the Coen Brothers, and I think it's a it's telling that one of the best. Times you can ever have having a couple drinks and arguing over film is there will be blood versus No Country for the Old Men, <laughs> yeah. and it's because those are two sides of the same knife about these uh, really talented filmmakers that haven't doubled down into like I'm a Tarantino movie you can always kind of call it shot you can call the shots of an, uh, a Wes Anderson movie you can't do that with the Coen brothers or P.T. Anderson. And I I think that's an interesting uh, point you make just about where people decide to take the gift of power and critical response.
2: There are very few filmmakers that ever have sort of the blank check and just open playing field that those guys have, right? Like it's rare to get, I mean, there's only a handful even now that can just decide what their next project to be.
0: Nolan and Tarantino.
1: And and PTA will also just like adapt other people's books, you know, he'll just be like, yeah, I'm just going to adapt you know, oil. He's not driven by ego the way that I think Tarantino and the, or even the Coen brothers are like, he seems to be a very kind of like humble dude who just wants uh, to, I mean, I, you yeah, know, we
0: are I, talking about Magnolia. Yeah, There's nothing. Humble I, about I it. Well, I'm, I'm just
1: saying that like, he, he's not, He's not as, like, obsessed with the idea of the PTA brand, right? Or he's become less interested Maybe in the, the PTA word is, brand. It's not the
0: brand. It's, he's not concerned with having a, a style.
1: Yeah. I mean, he wants to have his fingerprint, for yeah. sure. But he doesn't necessarily... He wants to make sure that he has his fingerprint. He wants to make sure it's, it's uh, like, up to his standard. But he doesn't necessarily need to, like, sign it. Hmm. Right? Like, I don't think that it's ever important for him to say, like, this is a PTA Sure. joint necessarily yes.
0: that is a good way of putting it The yeah. way that like Spike Lee or Tarantino
2: yeah, yeah. those of,
1: guys are super like yeah. it's very important for them to be able to make sure you see the fucking yeah. fingerprint right there like the stamp yeah, but, right there but,
2: but I will say watching Magnolia like you know yesterday and knowing knowing that it's a 28 year old P.T. Anderson 29 year old P.T. Anderson making this movie I, I sit there watching and think this guy is feeling himself right now yeah there. yeah it yeah. is It yeah. is
1: definitely the height of his of his nepo- uh, his, his narcissism narcissism, for sure. You know, Ryan and I were just watching part of the Magnolia Diary documentary, which is, if anybody hasn't seen it, I think it's on YouTube. It's wonderful. It's like, it's like 90 minutes long. It's, it's the entire process from uh, writing the script through them premiering the film,
2: yeah. and he he talks a lot about how I can't believe they gave me a final cut, right?
1: Um, yeah, and it's him and Fiona Apple like rolling up to the premiere and just like throwing their cigarettes out the window. Jesus, <laughs> yeah, humble guy, yeah, <laughs> yeah super humble. <laughs> oh, but it, but it's man. great. I mean, it, it it's it's proof of his genius. Like it, you can you can watch him through the entire process and the way that he works with actors and the way that he's refining the script. He might be an asshole. And that's fine. But it doesn't necessarily mean he's not a genius, right?
2: Well, I don't think he's an asshole. I just think, well, I think Maya Rudolph's probably a better influence than Fiona Apple. That's
0: a great call. I mean, it also just goes to show that, you know, yes, if you look at Fiona Apple is very on brand for 99. The actual relationship he has with uh, Maya Rudolph, it just goes to show also that despite how dark the movies and serious they can be, the the guy is married to, like, is he married or whatever? I think they're married, yeah. They have several kids. Multiple children together, yeah. Uh, To one of the funniest women uh, that SNL's kicked out. And, you know, look, that's why I really liked Inherent Vice, just for, like, this is serious and light. And it shows that it has some of the comedic timing of, like, Boogie Nights, and there are parts where it gets pretty heavy and dark. But, yeah, like I said, I think we're just all excited to see where... He goes next for a new, next project because he's not old and he doesn't make movies as often as we'd like, but they are always events when they ha- come around.
2: And he doesn't seem precious like Tarantino is about, like, oh, I'm going to get my 10 movies and get out yeah, or whatever. Yeah. I, I think he just, I think he's going to keep working until can yeah. not working. Maybe.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, we're, we're living in the time of The Irishman, right? Where Martin Scorsese is yeah. making three-and-a-half-hour movies for Netflix. Yeah. 30 years from now, we're still going to get movies from Paul Thomas Anderson, yeah. whether they're on Netflix or whether they're, like, streamed straight into our brain. Yeah.
2: Well, he also makes big movies. Movies that have really, really modest budgets. You know, you you look yeah. at all. I, I was <laughs> just looking at as like box office mojo stuff, and none of his movies have been like big money makers, but they all make a, a profit.
1: Yeah, but the problem is that the last couple of films have been financed by Megan Ellison, who's had a la- tough couple of years.
0: Yeah, so
2: well, a uh, well, couple you can, things. You I want can to, endure that when you're <laughs> a billionaire. That's
0: not a, <laughs> uh, a couple things I wanted to touch on before we start wrapping up. Please uh, do. One thing that really struck me that was a plus for me especially looking back 20 years the music of this movie is one of my favorite uses i mean it just we often talk about um johnny greenwood score for there will be blood but i don't think it's unfortunate that maybe it's lost to the 90s but john bryan and amy Mann really don't get the love that they deserve for this film yes the use of uh Save Me at the End is great. Everybody stopping at the literal uh, denouement of the movie, or they look like the, the character's lowest point. They all decide to sing in song. They're singing an Amy Mann song. That stuff is, yes, it's completely pretentious, but that really works. And it also is an interesting look at where we were musically in the 90s. I mean, I, it's, it's not a surprise that I keep bringing up the Beatles because, again, for, for a little bit of music context... The late 90s were going through an interesting retro pop phase that that then continued on to, you know, like indie rock and things like that. But what Amy Mann and John Bryan were doing with the score was indicative of like music tendencies. It has like a very Beatles-y vibe to it, the way it's orchestrated, just the way John Bryan's score really sweeps and holds all of these... Pretentious, you know, long, the, the crazy wonders of them, like going around the studio, really big melodramatic parts, are really supported by John Bryan's pretty underrated score. But I think he uses that to his full powers later on in Eternal Sunshine, which is a really good and that sc- I, score that really mirrors and I Heart Huckabee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he really and f- punch
2: drunk and sure. punch drunk. Yeah,
0: yeah. you're exactly yeah. right. I just don't think uh, it gets the credit it deserves for really catapulting John Bryan up to where he was. For the two thousands, but it's unfortunate that since then, and it is very telling that that sound nowadays isn't what we're looking for. Yeah. And as a result, it's it kind of was the peak of the nineties. We it was like a roller coaster, and we had a couple awesome twists and turns. But now we're in this age where like it just goes to show that you know as we hit twenty twenty, we're more interested in Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. And them doing, you know, Watchmen scores or Gone Girl and
1: Johnny Greenwood and Johnny
0: Greenwood with their dissonance that says a lot yeah. about where we are socially, as opposed to a very Beatles-esque Amy Mann singer songwriter feel of the '90s. And yeah. that's what I took away from it is that you could almost look at Magnolia as just an awesome three-hour music video for an Amy Mann album. And if you look at yeah. it that way, <laughs> it's a lot makes a lot more sense because then everything becomes more. It's okay to be more masturbatory. The guitar solos are instead of just being guitar their performances and things yeah. like that so it's
1: basically a musical it's basically a musical yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: you know
2: you just think of where pta's life was at with fiona apple he was exactly definitely super super into the laurel canyon <laughs> yeah shit yeah going on right there right that's a really and, good call that- yeah
0: i didn't even put that together yeah that's crazy
1: but like christopher nolan going over to Hans zimmer and uh david fincher going over to atticus ross mm-hmm. and um trent reznor Paul Thomas Anderson going over to Johnny Greenwood. <laughs> to Johnny Greenwood yeah. like these guys leveled up right
2: well l- leveled up or they or they just went with the time like like, like Paul, Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson sure. was like
1: hey John Bryan I love you you made these incredible scores for my films I'm gonna go over to Johnny Greenwood now that seems that's a little gro- it seems a little gross to me right It's not but I think but it, it, it do, just... do you
2: think John Bryan makes sense for There Will Be Blood or Phantom yeah. Thread no. He
0: uh, I, but he hasn't he hasn't worked with them since, right? I, I think it's less about uh, obvious choice of like I'm working with this guy. He's now my guy. You, if you look at where you know, even look at *Talented Miss Ripley*, you know, it's got there's a that upswing uh, where jazz uh, sort of vibe. We talked about things like ocean. Um, there's like a more of a retro. Thing that was happening in in the late nineties because of like, hey, things are great, and let's go back to this era when you know, you know, you know. I think Brian Bruni mentioned swing and stuff. Yeah, and (laughs) pop, is look at where we are musically. I think so up and fun, and now we get like twenty years later, and you know, not to get political, but it the music reflects how that's changed. And I think look where the nineties look. We could look at what we were worried about at the time, and it's it's quaint compared to what we have nowadays.
1: Yeah, I guess I guess I am just sort of like a little bit of a. Grassroots guy when it comes to all of this, right? Like I, I appreciate the fact that Nolan like found Hans Zimmer and that they just decided to like.
0: Hans Zimmer was doing fine before <laughs> Nolan came around.
1: I but, agree. Yeah. I'm just saying that like I, you know, he was doing incredible things with his previous composer mm-hmm. before he decided to like cross over to Hans Zimmer. I think that uh, PTA was doing incredible things with John Bryan before he decided to cross over to Johnny Greenwood. Would we have Johnny Greenwood if it wasn't for There Will Be Blood? Like, was There Will Be Blood what yeah. gave us Johnny Greenwood on the... Uh, I think- Would
2: we have more Radiohead albums if Johnny Greenwood didn't do There Will Be Blood? Exactly. That's I'm a just, good point. I'm not
1: <laughs> judging. I'm just saying that, like, I, I, I appreciate the fact that these guys are leveling up. I just want to make sure that we are giving the proper amount of respect to these composers who these guys came up with. Oh, yeah. Right? That, and that's the point I was trying you know? to make, is
0: that it's unfortunate that I think... Uh, right, like, like, like
1: John Bryant. John Bryan's score for Magnolia is fucking incredible. Mm -hmm. Like, John Bryan's score for Magnolia is basically a three-hour score. Mm -hmm. Like, he basically has music the entire Mm -hmm. film. And I was like, okay, Paul Thomas Anderson and John Bryan, these guys are joined at the hip, like... They're going Maybe to. Maybe actually the point that he's, he's going to score every film, and then all of a sudden he's like, "Hey, Johnny Greenwood, it just it, it just seemed a little bit like, hey, there's this cute girl over here who he's going to go. I think it's actually <laughs> less about. Go.
0: I think you're it more. It's more interesting to look at it from. It's not about the director leveling up. It's actually I. It speaks more about John Bryan as a musician that. He I don't think
1: evolved. John Bryan's bitter about it. No, no. Just... I mean, the
0: point is not about bitter. Is he hasn't evolved to to match right. the times either because he had such a specific sound.
1: Right, right. that and makes sense. That's
2: but what dates. I also think that, wasn't there a weird falling out with John Bryan and uh, Fiona Apple that made some of the? Films? Oh yeah, Good. you know. Now that you mention it, that makes perfect sense. Because she she scrapped his production of her album and.
0: That's right. You're completely right. I I. I'm surprised I didn't even remember. That's, we should all be funny. so lucky
1: yeah. to, uh, yeah. to have to find a different composer because our girlfriend yes. had a falling out yeah. with the composer who made our last film.
0: Well, on that note, that on that expl- note, the right. I, goes think, back I, I to think that's the, a to uh, way to stick the landing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, everything's connected, and we can only hope that it's either uh, uh, Eskimo Brothers or Falling Frogs from the Sky yeah. that make us have. Yeah, John the Bryan in our and Paul
1: Thomas Anderson have obviously both slept with Fiona <laughs> Apple. And- <laughs>
2: All right. Any any final sentences from either of you?
0: I think that is. You're not going to beat a more on the nose final sentence than that.
1: I think Magnolia is Paul Thomas Anderson's second best film. I'm just going to put that out there.
2: It's out there. I have it. I have it as his uh, worst, worst film. film. Yeah. yeah. That's
1: crazy. You're crazy.
2: No, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, <that's certainly> not. <laughs> that is that. Thank you, Ryan, for for coming back. Uh, we'll have you back again. Yeah, uh, you're the first member of the three timers club. I think we determined. So, congratulations. Your uh, sport coat will be in the mail, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, the the view's uh, great from up here, guys. Anders, <laughs> yeah, get up, get up here, dude. <laughs> um, so this has been we like movies retrospectating 1999. I think we're kind of through with it. Yeah, are then, we gonna
0: are we gonna get any sort of uh, wrap up here uh,
2: to finish up
0: retrospectating or?
2: Uh... Yeah, we're gonna do retrospectating retrospectating 1999. <laughs> all next year. Um, no, we, we might have a wrap up episode. We'll we'll, we'll figure that out later. But uh, for now, this has been retrospectating 1999. See y'all later. See ya. Goodbye. Shut me down Like radium
1: Like Peter Pan
2: Never love anyone